When they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. All of a sudden, when the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and ran to greet him. Then he asked them, what are you arguing with them about? Out of the crowd, one man answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Wherever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. He replied to them, you unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. So they brought him to him. When the spirit saw him, it immediately convulsed the boy. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked his father. From childhood, he said, and many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Then Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible to the one who believes. Immediately the father of the boy cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly coming together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Then it came out, shrieking and convulsing him violently. The boy became like a corpse, so that many said, he's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him and he stood up. After he went into, an, into a house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Right. Matthew, Mark chapter 9. Anybody hear that boinging? Just me? Oh, that was me trying to set the 40-minute alarm for the sermon. Sorry about that. Okay. Better just to say things out loud that are obvious. All right, Mark chapter 9. We, came, we are coming to a nostalgic passage. Um, the first time I preached a message in my life, this is the passage that I chose as an 18-year-old. So that was 25 years ago. In Middletown, Ohio, Heritage Baptist Church, there's a small church plant, and my high school Bible teacher asked me to preach, and I chose this passage to preach. And this was my very first sermon. As it might not surprise you, I totally misunderstood the passage. As I look back on it, I'm a little bit embarrassed that what I did was take verse 24, where this man makes this statement that has become, I think, quite well known. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. And I made that into a work that the people need to do. We need to believe better. And we need to pray more, because at the end he says, these things, this kind only comes about through prayer. So my conclusion to that sermon was, we don't believe good enough, and we don't pray enough. That's why good things aren't happening enough. It's really, as I look back on it, um, I guess it's not too surprising that I misunderstood the passage, but um, I took something that was supposed to be good news, and I made it bad news. I made it more weight on people to do. Um, I took something that was supposed to give freedom, and I made it something that puts 
weights around the ankles of people. Something that, a passage that should teach us and give us, uh, free us from guilt, and I caused a pile of more guilt on people through my understanding of that passage. I don't know what, how you understand that passage when you first read this, but it's possible because of your human tendency to think that if you can do more, then God will be more pleased with you, and if you can work harder and pray better, then maybe better things would happen in your life that this phrase, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief, and Jesus exhorting his disciples to more prayer or to prayer at all may cause that same reaction of works in your own heart. So, hopefully by the end of this sermon, you'll see why I not only got it wrong, but I got it completely the opposite of what this passage is meant to share with us today. The sermon for today's title, the title for today's sermon is The Good News Illustrated. Um, Last week, we looked at the good news apocrypha, which is we saw the good news in the uh, glory of Jesus on top of that mountain called the transfiguration. Today, what we see as Jesus comes off of the mountain in the healing of this boy who was possessed by a demon and then looked as if he were dead and by the touch of Jesus rose again, we see the good news in a dramatic visual illustration of the power of Christ where we are powerless. And so a longer title than the Good News Illustrated is, I would give it this and three basic ideas. We can't, he can, but it'll take a fight, so hold on. So that's what we're going to work with. We can't, he can, but it'll take a fight, so hold on. So, beginning with we can't. So the context of this story will help us to avoid some doctrinal error there as I preached at 18 years old, is that we saw up on the mountain the glory of Christ as he shone um, in his intrinsic glory that we talked about last week, that in Christ is the glory of God. And that as his disciples saw him for what he really is, they saw his identity. Moses and Elijah met there and testified, we are not the glory of God, he is, and they testified that the Messiah has come. The disciples ask then toward, on their way back down the mountain, so why do, if you look with me in verse 11, they said, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? It's important to remember from last week that the reason they asked this question is because of a similar question they asked in Acts 1, 6, where they said, when will you then restore the kingdom to Israel? So the background of the idea of the disciples was that Jesus is going to restore the kingdom to Israel. And they had in their minds a nostalgic time of under King David and Solomon when the kingdom of Israel was powerful and it was well known and feared among all nations. And so Jesus, though, told them that the Son of Man must suffer and be treated with contempt. You can read that in verse 12. He says, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? 
Now, that's what that has to do with their question about Elijah, is before the Messiah would reign in glory, he would first suffer and be treated with contempt. And then as he comes off of the mountain, what does he see? In verse 14, there is disputing between the scribes, the religious people, and his disciples, the nine of them that were left there. And they were disputing about something that in verse 7, a father steps forward to respond to Jesus' question, what is this commotion about? And he says this, teacher or rabbi, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and what does he say about the response he got from the disciples? And they were not able. Toward the end of this passage in verse 28, the disciples asked Jesus, why couldn't we? Why were we not able? So the topic of this passage is not that we need to work harder or try harder, but the topic of the, of the point of this passage is that we are not able, in fact. Um, in verse 29, Jesus says it's this kind that we are not able to overcome. And then he says, except with prayer. So we have four characters in this passage who fail and who are not able. First of all, the scribes, they represent our government and our religious crowd to try to fix our problems. Some of us get fixated on the idea that our government, if we just get the right party or the right person in power, will be able to fix our problems. It's clear, I think, we've had enough history behind us to know that it can't, and we can't. Um, the, another person that couldn't fix this boy's spiritual problem was the father. Now, dads are supposed to be able to fix everything, right? At least little kids think so, and the older they get, they realize that their dads aren't the Superman that they thought they were as children, even though some, many dads, we don't like to admit that for a long time to our kids. But the reality is that parents who should be capable are not capable in this kind of fight. Um, a third person that was incapable or not able was the boy. So this boy that was, uh, had a demon in him, he had a spiritual oppression of one of the power, powerful beings of Satan had entered into this boy and this speaks, I think, to how innocence doesn't last. And there was some psycho psychologist who once thought that if we could just preserve the innocence of childhood from the corrupting powers of culture around it, that possibly we could create the society that we want. But I think we've also given up on that idea because innocence doesn't stay. Uh, also, we've... Many people have lamented the fact that the sin of Adam was passed down to his children and said that, well, that's just not fair. Why does Adam's sin become mine? We see in this possession of this boy that though we don't like it, it's a reality. That even innocence doesn't stay with us and all men together are corrupted by the powers of Satan in our world. Finally, the, the focus of who can't in this passage are the disciples. They're really the ones that we should have expected to have been able to because they were commissioned by Jesus to heal, 
cast out demons and preach the good news. But when Jesus left them to go into the mountain, possibly they became self-confident. You know, they've hit one home run, I can do this in my sleep, and then all of a sudden they strike out, and they can't anymore. And so the disciples, having a bent towards self-confidence, ventured into belief in self and lost their belief in Christ, and their spiritual power was such a, at such a loss that they couldn't. So this is the beginning of what this means that we are corrupted because of the fall. So what we see Jesus coming down off the mountain is he confronts spiritual failure, confront the great enemy of the original sin of Satan as he tempted Adam and Eve. And that man, despite all of our efforts for all of these thousands of years, cannot overcome, even though we try. In fact, the whole Old Testament exists to teach us that man cannot. We cannot overcome the temptations of sin for a generation. You see Adam and Eve and as parents in the first generation and Cain kills Abel. We cannot overcome the temptation of sin even in um, the flood because of a great destruction. You would think Noah, he's got this now. Adam messed up, but we're gonna have a better guy to start this family that doesn't go well within the same generation. Okay, well maybe it's a family. Maybe if there's one chosen family, a man full of faith, Abraham, and we see that that family also cannot provide or cannot come through on the promises of the good life and of following God. Finally, we see the failure of a whole nation who God becomes the king of as he brings them out of Egypt redeems them, gives them his holy law, and they were supposed to follow him, and they fail. So if you wonder why we have the whole Old Testament, the, the, one of the bigger, for, besides the self-revelation of God, which is all of Scripture, the biggest human reason for the Old Testament is a constant and, you could say, a repeated lesson that humans cannot solve this problem for themselves. So um, the idea that the disciples had um, I w is, is about what the kingdom of Israel should be. This is what they wanted. They wanted God, the Savior, the Messiah, to return them to this place of glory that they as a nation had lost. So I'll read for you a few verses of the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapters 4 and 5, and it describes Israel at the top of their power at the zenith of glory of what the nation was. King Solomon was king over all Israel. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand of the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt for he was wiser than all other men. The passage goes on, if we could read it, to describe the glory of Solomon and his building projects and how the kings of Egypt and the queen of Sheba and those of the east came just to give him gifts. And this was 
Israel, the people of God, at the height of their glory. But what happened? Could they hold on to that glory? Could they hold on to this ideal kingdom that would, was supposed to last forever because God had promised to David, your son will sit on the throne and rule with justice and righteousness forever. First Samuel, or Second Samuel chapter seven. Did it happen? Not in that generation. Because of Solomon's sin, temptation of lust, Luke, re, Luke led us in a confessional prayer about adultery. And this was the temptation that Solomon, with his 300 wives and 700 concubines, leading him not only from physical adultery, but into spiritual adultery, as the whole nation was given to idols because of that sin. It was sin the because of the tempter that brought down the ideal even when Israel reached its greatest height of glory. So it's the presence of sin in our lives and the tempter that tempts us and all of its consequences that keeps anything glorious from lasting. Um, our lives are individually played out as a microcosm of the nation of Israel's history. As we start out thinking that our lives are gonna be great and glorious, but then sin affects it, and we realize that we are weaker than we ever imagined. So one of the best things that could possibly happen to you is failure, because success and strength are fading illusions. And some of us believe the success that we've had so no matter all of your arguing, as the disciples were just arguing with the scribes about who has authority to, pass, to cast out these demons, because that was always the discussion with the scribes and the Pharisees. Who gave you authority? And they were arguing, and they were going back and forth, but in reality, none of them had authority. So despite all of your arguing and your wisdom and your fighting for the ideal life that you want, we find that we fail over and over. That's why in our services, we, lead, we go through a confessional prayer because it's good for us to be reminded of our sin. I've been, I, the church that I grew up in, it was like confession was something you do when you receive Christ and then you never mention it again. Now we're just going to cruise just talking about Jesus and never recognizing our own sin. And it leads to a whole lot of lack of confession and built up sin. That's why also we, we want multi-generational discipleship to happen in our church. Um, last Sunday, Joe came to the college students' Bible study and, and I asked him to share what helped him to grow as a Christian when he was a college student. And I didn't tell him what to say, but what he talked about was failures and how failures of sin in his life caused him to taste the Lord's goodness and grace and receive forgiveness. That seems like a common theme. Now, wouldn't it be amazing if we as young men and women could learn from another generation that despite all of my efforts to achieve glory through education and through the achievement of wealth and all of in sports and all of these things, wouldn't it be wonderful if we were like King Josiah who from a very young age realized that my only strength and hope is in the Lord and not in myself and we could live a whole life leaning on and dedicated to the power of God and not trusting in our own power? Unfortunately, 
A lot of us have to learn through our own experience, but we would be wise to pay attention to this passage that tells us that we can't. Now, that might seem like a negative message. Um, I was talking to a few of the young men about another religious service they went to last week, and they were like, oh, it was really positive. And you wonder, does Christianity just have an extra negative kind of message? Why are we always talking about sin and failure of, of ourselves? Aren't we just a bunch of sad Puritans who can't enjoy life because we're just always dwelling on our own failures and sin? Well, in Christ, humility precedes glory. Without Christ, glory precedes humility. Meaning, as you start in glorious life and positive, I can do it, you meet the end of yourself through sin and in your community and ultimately in your eternal destruction without Christ. So while our own sin and failure is no place to stay, it's a very important place to start that we can't. But that's not the whole point of this passage. That was the point of the old covenant, that we can't. But the point of the gospel of Mark is this, he can. So let's look at what that says. After this father in verse 18 said they were not able, in verse 19, Jesus says, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. That was part of my interpretation as an 18-year-old, that you are not believing well enough and you're not praying well enough, and Jesus is frustrated with you because you don't do good enough and you need to do better. Now, I didn't say it exactly like that, but that was basically the idea. So now we have some frustration on the part of Jesus, so how should we understand this? And here is what we're going to do to understand it. So Moses, if you remember, on the mount where he saw the glory of God and he received the Ten Commandments comes down, and what does he find at the bottom of the hill? The failure of God's people as they're worshiping a golden calf. They failed in the few minutes, or few days, it was 40 days, that he left them and went to the top of this mountain. And during that time, they could not stay faithful to God, but they made for themselves an idol, and they circled and danced around it and worshiped this thing that they made with their own hands. So what was Moses' response? Well, the first thing he did was he threw down the two tablets of stone, which God, with his own finger, had written the Ten Commandments, and he broke them. And then he took that golden calf, and he burnt it. And he took the ashes of that golden calf, because it was surely of different mixed metals, and, they, and he spread it in water, and he caused the people to drink it. If you haven't read it, you need to read it, Exodus 30, 32, something like that. And so he caused them to drink of the own bitterness of their sin. And that's what we get when we stay in the he can't, the bitter taste of our failure. But our Savior, is that what he does? He talks to this man, and look what he says here in verse 21. He says, how long has this been happening to him? Now, this reminds me of a medical professional, right? Who, listening to this problem, wants to know some details. Now, Jesus knows the details, so why does he ask? I think he's asking to show to us his kind heart to care about the details, to care like a doctor or anybody trying to come to a solution. And what does he do to this young man and his father who are possessed by this demon and the disciples who didn't, weren't able to? Now, under the curse of the law, they only can drink of the bitterness of their failure. But in Jesus, this is what Jesus does. 
he listens to this boy's father tell him about what happened. So look in verse 20, 22, and we're going to see what was happening. So in verse 18, 20, and 22, the father is describing what this demon is doing to his son. And it's a pretty grim thing. So he foams and grinds his teeth. He throws himself down. Um, and then in verse 20, um, this boy right in front of him convulsed, fell on the ground, and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And then in verse 22, it sa- the, the father says, from childhood, and it has oft cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. So what is going on with this picture? Well, it's described, what is the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about? Is it like I thought at 18? Well, there are some cases of where we need miracles so bad that we need extra faith and extra prayer. And if we'll just pray longer and believe harder, then maybe God will give us some grace in these really hard situations. Is that what this passage is about? Well, what we learn from this demonic possession here is that this kind, as, as Jesus says in verse 29, this kind is the kind of corruption of the image of God in this child and in anyone who falls under the power of the tempter. Look what it says in verse 22. It says, he try, this demon tries to cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. In fact, isn't this what sin is doing to all of us? Trying to destroy us? trying to destroy the image of God which with, he, with which he created us, to where we would be perfectly loving and perfectly kind and perfectly patient and perfectly wise and perfectly, well, like him. That's who he created us to be. So that our marriages would be wonderful places of blessing and grace, but instead, because of the tempter, because of sin that lives inside of us, they are being constantly threatened with destruction because the image of God is being corrupted and twisted because of sin. And we could apply that not just to marriage, but to our relationships in church, with friendships, with, in our workplace, in our own personal moral failures, and in everything in life. This kind is the, the failure or the lack of ability, let's say, to be able to overcome the wicked one. That's what this kind is. Because the wicked one is trying to destroy everything about God's image in this world, including and especially the crown of his creation, which is you, the human created in the image of God. And so what does Jesus say? Why can Jesus? Now, you know, what is the difference between a moral religious sermon that exhorts people to do good and to be better people and a Christian sermon. Why is it Jesus that is the only one who can? Well, first of all, Jesus is is the image of the invisible God, Colossians tells us. That in Christ, God was making himself manifest to the world in an uncorrupted version, without sin, without failure of any kind. So Jesus Christ is the word of God made flesh. And he is full of compassion. This father says, if you have compassion, if you can have compassion on us, well, he can and he does have compassion. 
Jesus tells them in verse 23, if you believe, it actually is very interesting. Look with me if you can in verse 23. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Now, Jesus did not tell him all things are possible to one who believes enough. He said all things are possible to one who believes. Now, this man gives a very interesting response and says, I believe, help my unbelief. Notice Jesus did not say you need enough faith. The little faith this man had was sufficient because it was not about the strength of his faith. It was about the object of his faith. It was about his, even the little bit of faith he had in Jesus. That was what was sufficient for healing. We're about to take the Lord's Supper together for all of you who have believed on Christ. Um, I don't know if it's ever occurred to you that we have very small cups back there. I think it's occurred to you, right? We have very small cups. Why don't we need bigger cups? Because that very small cup, while imparting no magical grace to you, is a symbol of the sufficiency of Christ in the smallest measure is completely sufficient. So that, what's some application of that? So to be failed by the disciples, this father and son were failed by the disciples who could not because of their unbelief. To be failed by other disciples of Jesus is not the same as being failed by Jesus. That is to say that if you've been failed by a church or you've been failed by a Christian spouse or a Christian parent or somebody who calls himself a disciple of Jesus, it is not the same thing as being failed by Jesus. In fact, we should expect that other Christians who are disciples of Jesus will fail us because they aren't him. So I said, we can't, but he can. And the last part of that is, but it's going to take a fight. So hold on. So moving on, Jesus now comes into direct confrontation with that demon in verse 25. Jesus saw that the crowd came running together. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it. And then this, this phrase of what Jesus says to this unclean spirit contains a lot in it. So he says, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter Again, this is the third story in the Gospel of Mark of an exorcism, God and, and Jesus sending out a demon. It's the first time that he says, never enter him again. And it's the first time that the, that the subject, meaning the boy, falls down as dead. So, what is going on here? The suffering, death, and resurrection of this boy, as you see in verse 26, it says, and after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he is dead. Why that emphasis? Because in verse 27, Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. So this is the only story of this sort of exorcism where the boy died, and by the touch of Jesus came back to life. And that's where I get the title of the sermon, The Good News Illustrated. Jesus was giving them an illustration because they were having a very hard time understanding the suffering part of the Messiah and the death part and the resurrection. If you remember back in, in verse 9 and 10, they were arguing about themselves, what does he mean by this resurrection? Why is he talking about a resurrection? He's supposed to ascend directly to the throne. Why is he talking about suffering, death, and resurrection? And in, because they aren't getting it, he illustrates it. I have to go into a fight 
with your enemy that you could not overcome as a substitute, substitutionarily fighting this fight for you, and death, suffering is going to happen. If you see in verse 26, it says, and after crying out and convulsing him terribly. So this was not just uh, a simple exiting. This was a painful exiting where he was convulsing. For sure, hitting the ground and cutting his body up as it happened. And then he was there as dead. So this was an illustration, a very live dramatic illustration of the suffering, death, and resurrection of the Messiah as he goes to fight these eternal enemies of man. In this phrase that he says, you mute and deaf spirit, we see a targeted word of God that he said this is about a spiritual battle between the spirit of God and the tempter. And he says, I command you, this is the authority of Christ over the powers of Satan, that we do not have this authority. And in fact, it was the he would gain this authority with the resurrection. So the Father will give the Son all authority and would crown him to sit on his right hand. And then he says, come out of him. This is the substitutionary fight that Jesus wins on our behalf. And then he says, never enter him again. This is representing the complete work of Christ on the cross, that we are forever, because of one sacrifice, freed forever from the power of Satan. And then you have the suffering, and you have the resurrection by the power of God. So the question is, what did Christ accomplish against Satan, his power and his consequences, with his suffering, death, and resurrection. And I have a few verses to read for you. Isaiah 53, 5 tells us what Jesus accomplished with his own suffering. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Each one of those words in Isaiah 53, 5 is about the, subs the propitiation. The word propitiation means that Jesus received the wrath of God that we deserved for our sin on his own body in his suffering. And as a substitute, he carried our sin for us. And then in his death, Jesus took our ultimate consequence of the death penalty because of our failure to overcome Satan. Romans 8:34 says, Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. In his resurrection, what did Jesus accomplish in his resurrection that we could not? Ephesians 1, 20 through 21 says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So in the suffering, death, and resurrection of the Messiah, he was going to overcome for us, in our place, Satan and all of the consequences of our guilt. So, Verse 28 and 29 represent a postscript, the end of the story. His disciples said, why couldn't we do it? That's kind of like saying, why can't I take on Satan by myself? 
Why can't we overcome this enemy? Why can't we just have a more positive message that says you can and I can and we can together? And Jesus says this, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So you might think, well, that means we need to pray harder and more. But what he is really saying, I think, here is this kind can only happen by holding on. Prayer is looking to. Who are you praying to? And only in the subject of your prayer, in the subject of your faith, who is Jesus Christ, can you? So we cannot. He can, but it's going to take a fight, so hold on. It won't be your fight. You've already lost the fight. I've already lost the fight. But he can and has, and we all will hold on. In fact, it's him holding on to us. So what does this mean for our daily lives? Well, I think through this passage, we can learn what the disciples should have learned when Jesus went up on that mountain, that without him, we can do nothing. That, but with him, all things are possible to those who believe. So learn complete, he wants us to learn complete daily, moment by moment reliance, not only on the person of Jesus, but on the work of Jesus. On the mountain, we saw the person of Jesus glorified. In the valley of our sin, we see the work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. How often do you think about and contemplate and thank God for the work of Christ in his suffering in your place and his death for your death and his resurrection to give you power? How often does that come into your mind as being the central focus of what will make you be able to do all the things that you cannot? So to the single people or our young people, I want to say hold on to him early. Do not trust yourselves. Do not trust in your power and all of the things that you search for in life. Hold on to him now, early, and for the rest of your life. For those married and for those raising children, look together to Christ. Hold on to him together. In fact, it's not a surprise to any of us that in marriage and in raising our children that we often feel overwhelmed and incapable and in fact failing. This is expected in our journey on this earth. So hold on to him. It's gonna take a fight. You're going through the suffering you're going through the fight, but he's been through it for you, and he has, in resurrection, power lives in you. For our church, it means to receive our inability to help people. You know, the disciples were not able, and sometimes as people who minister to others, we put a lot on ourselves, and we think we have to solve everybody's problems, and we have to fix this child of ours, or we have to fix this problem in this city or in this world, And what could allow us to have a very positive message? To say, I can't, but he can. And where he hasn't given me the resources of time or of strength or of finances, then I still can't, but I can pray. And I can go to him, and I can trust that he can and that he cares. And so as a church, this is a very positive message of hope that we learn daily and moment by moment to trust not only in the person of Jesus, but in the work of Jesus that he does in our valley with us and for us. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your cross.
We thank you for your suffering in our place. We thank you that we don't have to work up enough faith, that we don't have to pray hard enough, but in fact, we only need to rest in the work that you've already accomplished for us. I pray that you would teach us this when we're in the valley of our suffering, when we're going through the consequences of sin and the, the, the terrible magnet of, pers- of temptation in this life, that you would remind us moment by moment to look to you in prayer, to hold on to you, because you can when we can't. In Jesus' name.